Hey there, and welcome to This Ocean Life Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peterson. Today's episode number 73, we speak with Dan Hafley, an ocean activist who has spent decades working to protect California waters. Now today, Dan takes us through the amazing story of battling oil companies back in the 1980s and 90s to block their offshore oil drilling north of Santa Barbara here in California. We hear of the grassroots activism Dan was involved with through Save Our Shores, where he worked closely with NOAA and a lot of local government agencies to designate the Monterey Bay National Ring Sanctuary, a 6,000 plus square mile protected area along California's coast. Dan talks about his interaction with Jack O'Neill, leading into development of the Sea Odyssey program to educate and inspire school children on the ocean. Dan shares a lot of great perspective on citizen involvement to protect the ocean, the challenges we face today around conservation, and the amazing people he's worked with over the years. So thanks for being here, supporting the podcast. Let's reduce plastic usage. Let's pick up some trash and have a lot of fun in the water. So with that, Let's get into the ocean life of Dan Hafley. Dan, welcome to this Ocean Life podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited, man. Thank you for hosting me in your house here on the east side of Santa Cruz, right next to kind of iconic 26th Avenue Beach. Oh, absolutely, Josh. It's a great place. My wife and I bought this place in 1994. It's close to the beach, which we love. We yeah. walk a lot and it was very close uh, to work for me when I was commuting to the harbor, about six blocks. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a really wonderful, quiet spot yeah. to live. Yeah, it's awesome. It's like you're you're on the east side, but you're also close to kind of midtown, the harbor, and then the west side. It's like oh. central Santa Cruz at its best, man. I love this area. Absolutely. Everything we need is within you know six to eight blocks from here. Yeah. So we really love it. It's quiet and it's it's Particularly when you, I mean, my wife was a school teacher for many years and retired. And I, of course, was at O'Neill Sea Odyssey for the last 20 years and recently retired. It was a great central location. It was sort of our sanctuary yeah. where we would come and escape. Right, right. You know, with our children, too. It was a great place to raise children. Oh, for sure, for sure. It's very cool, man. So, you know, as we were chatting when I first got here, one of the interesting you're extremely interesting to me for multiple reasons, but one is when I put you next to all the 70-ish other uh, guests on the podcast. Right. You're very similar in certain ways and you're very different in other ways. You're very yes. similar because you have a strong passion for the ocean. Right. Right. But very different because your passion, I'd say the passion from everybody else comes from being in it, under it, on it. Right. In many different ways, being wet. Exactly. And while you have your own connection with the ocean physically, you kayak and do other things, yours is a slightly different. Yours is more about, I call it activism and conservation and protection, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. And so it's a really neat, and we, ha we had this nice little balance between the two with Jenea Kelly, who's locally here, you know, right, helping right. the Monterey Bay Sanctuary. Right. So I'm really excited to have this sort of other end of the spectrum of where of passion for the ocean that we'll hear today. Right, right. Yeah, it comes from, it's interesting because I use the example of Jack O'Neill who had a passion for the ocean because he wanted to spend more time in colder waters yeah. when he moved to San Francisco and he actually spent time in Portland, Oregon. Uh, before that, these are cold waters and he designed a way that he could stay in colder waters by innovating the wetsuit design. And but his passion for the ocean was holistic. He also believed, he always believed uh, 
that there was more there than just water to have fun in. Hmm. He believed that it was uh, something that was very important to the planet. He knew about systems because he had an engineering background. And naturally his personality and his mind took him to these places. So for me, my passion started uh, growing up believing that there were interconnectedness between various parts of the planet. Hmm. So I spent time in the mountains when I was growing up. My father was a scoutmaster. He wasn't interested in uniforms. He didn't want to march us around. Instead, he took us up to the mountains. We went hiking. We spent time at the beach, Southern California, close to the beach, but we were near most of the major habitats that you could experience. Yeah. And so touching those various parts of the plant's environment and knowing about air quality also. I grew up when smog was yep. a big issue. Uh, my parents would take me out to the races out in Redlands uh, and Riverside. And after those races, the sky would literally be red. Really? It would be so polluted and I couldn't breathe. So I had an awareness of this. So that's where my passion comes from. It doesn't come from being a surfer, being in the yeah. water. And I did surf when I was younger. It didn't work out too well. Yep. I do spend time in the water. But for me, it's more along those holistic, uh, those holistic lines. Whereas somebody like Jack O'Neill, it was driven primarily by the fact that he had a boat and he was in the water and he wanted to do something with that and bring other people out there so they can learn about the environment, yeah. which is a very natural thing to do. Right. So for you, like, so you mentioned growing up as a kid, 20 minutes from the water, which can feel like hours sometimes in Southern California because of all the traffic and everything, there's right. pollution. Where did you get your sort of sense for these systems? Not at, like you didn't grow up on the beach in the water all day long. You would visit it, you'd be there, but where did you develop your sense for the ocean's connection to sort of health and the land? Was it from school? Was it just something you put together on your own? I think it was just a, a natural understanding. My, my dad, again, was very influential in this, I think. We lived about three miles from the water. We were in a place oh, called great. Rossmore. Seal Beach was down the road, okay. and I would ride my bike down there. I'd go down there with friends. Yes, you were we, close, yeah. We would also go up to the mountains because my dad would get us there. So that was a big part mm. of it. So I think naturally, and also my dad was very into Native American culture, and we would go down the library, we check out books about what we then call referred to as American Indians, and we would go visit the Wittiapi, which was the annual gathering of Native Americans to do traditional dances, etc. And so I put all this together cool. and the natural belief that systems work together, and plus Southern California, even now, you think of it as concrete jungles, it's a place where you can see a lot of the environment yeah. in full bloom. And it's because you don't have natural seasons down there. It's the, the weather's pretty mm -hmm. much the same all year round, but you would have dramatic thunderstorms during the summer. So it's the combination of being able to access the natural environment, access the outdoors, year-round, but then also see these phenomena like the, the the lightning and thunderstorms, be able to go to the ocean, be able to mm -hmm. go up into the conifers, up in the forest, see the red-tailed hawk. So I was able to put all that together as a young person. And also, you know, the 60s were alive. Yeah. Uh, the Vietnam War protests, um, feminism, all of these things were coming to the fore. The Watts riots right. were right there in Southern California. So social justice, you're able to see all this stuff. So I think that all, I didn't necessarily put it all together then, but it all came together in a way that I think defined 
uh, things for me. And when I was at UCSC, uh, where I uh, transferred from West Valley College to go to school, I was studying economics, but I became immediately fascinated and delved into community activism in hmm. town, particularly around uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear power and other issues and ultimately into ocean protection, which yeah. seemed natural for me. Right, right. So how did you make that move from Southern California up to the Bay Area where we are and then you know, West Valley College is a junior college sort of in the South Bay, right, right over right. the hill from Santa Cruz. Right. So how did you make that sort of leap from Southern Cal up to here initially? Right, right. My, uh, so my parents divorced when I was very young. I was the youngest of three children. The, the marriage wasn't good. My dad was marginally, financially marginal. Mm -hmm. He was a brilliant designer of homes and buildings, but he did not have a, a license to be an architect. Mm -hmm. He was a terrible business person. Right. So we were marginal. They divorced when I was around 12 or 13, I believe. I moved in with my brother uh, who was living in Oxnard with his first wife, which was up the coast. And ultimately they wound up moving up to San Jose and I moved with them with yeah. uh, his first wife's children. And then they split up. So my brother and I were over the hill. I was finishing high school. I got out of here early. Mm wound up at West Valley College. I was sort of on my own at an early yeah. age and uh, was trying to make it and didn't really have financial resources. So I worked and I went to West Valley College and I did a work study program and I saved money. In those days, you're able to rent for cheap. Mm -hmm. I rented with a bunch of other people uh, in a place on Sobrato Lane over in Campbell and eventually wound up at UCSC with a couple of scholarships and with the money I'd saved. So I had fun when I was at UCSC. Yeah. Enjoyed myself. This was the late 70s, early 80s. Right. And then delved into um, the politics, which was where my passion was. Right. Uh, I found that it was it, it was something I was having fun doing, mm. and and I felt my calling. Right. So that's kind of how I wound up. Yeah. Here in Northern Cal or in Central California. Right. So the activism thing was. You kind of it called you. You were you'd grown up already with a connection to the ocean. How did or if at all being at UC Santa Cruz is a magnificent place. Yes, the views. I mean, you just can't help but stop. It's amazing. Whatever place you're to doing, live. like I ride my bike last night. I, I from my house, I ride up to the top, and every oh, time wow. I blaze down, I've been doing it for my whole life, but I Fantastic. still have to stop, you know, and take yeah. a look for at least two or three minutes, because it's just so breathtaking. The Old Cal Ranch is an amazing place. I had never seen a banana slug in my life yeah. until I wound up living at Kresge College and I walked outside of my suite, at my little room at Bittersweet, and the whole sidewalk was covered in banana slugs. No way. I'd never seen that before. <laughs> yeah. And the redwoods and the second rain, the water dripping down, and just being in that environment, plus the the community that was up there at Kresge right. College, we had a food co-op. People were talking about the environment. Yeah. LGBT, gay people were living there. Yep. And this was, again, the late 70s, early 80s. Right. This was something that I had not been used to in Southern California. Uh, you would walk to your classes. You would uh, budget time between the classes to walk back and forth. You didn't drive your car around. It was right. parked. I had a little Volkswagen bug and my friends and I would go down to town every once in a while so we'd fill up that bug and drive down to town for whatever reason. Uh, it was an amazing place and the environment up there, it, it reinforced for me the natural environment. We would sit out at a, a meadow outside of Kresge College, literally would sit and watch the sunset. Yeah. So we would take 
literally 45 minutes to do nothing but just watch the sunset right. and talk about that sunset and the colors and how the the sun dipped into the ocean and it dipped below the redwoods and it dipped below the madrone trees yeah amazing right. days and and i had the time to appreciate mm. and savor it right which is nice which is rare nowadays yes <laughs> with so much going on and yes <laughs> yes so then is it safe to say that part of that experience of being up at the college overlooking monterey bay and the ocean which is gorgeous watching the sun dip into the ocean i mean was that at some point as you got excited your calling for activism was strong and you picked at some point the ocean to yeah. really start to focus around right how did when did you first kind of get into an organization or an effort of activism around the ocean what was that initially it was save our shores so and that's actually that actually happened not by accident but by happenstance i had been involved in community activism in town it was 1985 i knew about save our shores which was formed in 1978 by eight individuals all volunteers and uh, I was renting a house uh, up in Prospect Heights, mm -hmm. Trescany Avenue, and I was sitting there with a friend of mine, and the phone rang. And it was Kim Schantz, who was the founder of Save Our Shores. And he said, uh, as you know, the city of Santa Cruz just, the voters of the city of Santa Cruz just approved Measure A, which banned onshore facilities for offshore oil without a vote of the people. And it also allocated some money for Save Our Shores to do to do travel around the state and promote similar ordinances up and down the state and to fight offshore oil. Hmm. Um, it's a full-time job. We have a six-month contract, so we can't speak to what happens after that six months. Are you interested in doing this? And I said, okay. <laughs> you know, I'll do it for, and I think the the figure was was six was twelve hundred a month, yeah. or maybe it was sixteen hundred a month. I I don't remember exactly, but was a small amount of money and um, I'd be reimbursed for some of the costs. It was a contract. So I said yes. So um, we competed for Save Our Shores for the contract with a couple of other outfits and we got the contract. And that's when I uh, delved into it is yeah. I started driving up and down the state. And uh, the first thing we did was develop a slideshow um, which was aimed at convincing local governments to approve ordinances which were aimed at local zoning. Uh, so essentially, uh, if offshore oil were to occur in federal waters, three to 200 miles offshore, controlled by the federal government, or even in state waters, which is a mean high tide line out mm -hmm. to three miles, these would be approved or disapproved by federal or state legislators. But locally, you would have to have support facilities, so helicopter right. pads, um, places where um, pipelines could make landfall, um, storage yards, uh, dewatering facilities down in Santa Barbara. As you're heading south on Highway 101 and you hit the coast there past the tunnel and you're heading down to Santa Barbara, heading south, that big plant on your left is not a refinery. It's a dewatering facility. Mm. So that's where they take the seawater out of the oil. So these ordinances were essentially aimed at local government's control over these onshore facilities. So we wrote a letter. Mike Rotkin was the mayor at the time, mm. and he signed the letter, and uh, I was the contact person. We sent a copy of the sample ordinance and a letter to every coastal city in California. But... 
we were going to focus on the area north of the Santa Maria River, Santa Maria River yep. being the dividing line between Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo counties. So um, that's where I got involved. So we developed a slideshow um, so that once the local government said, yes, I'm interested in having you come talk to us about doing this, we would present them a slideshow. I did a draft of the slideshow. Back in those days, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have <laughs> iPhones to take pictures. I would actually have physical slides yep, the real of deal. photos, and I would have Bay Photo Lab yeah. develop them, and I put them into a slide projector, one of yep. those carousels, and yep. you know, if it stayed in there too long, it would burn up because of the <laughs> lamp. And I literally, my the kitchen table at Trescony Street would be loaded up with slides. I came up with a 45-minute slideshow. I went and uh, debuted it at the Santa Cruz City Council. And they all kind of watched it. And they didn't really respond. Yeah. And I thought, uh-oh. And then afterwards, Jane Weed was on the council. An old friend of mine said, Dan, you really got to shorten it. <laughs> you got to shrink that It was down. really bad. <laughs> so I went back and spent a week redoing it night and day. And was ready to go and started traveling around the state. So that's where the passion was. And of course, in those days, I had no time to get in the water and yeah. do anything. It was just night and day, work, right. work, work. And it was me and a few volunteers. So at that time, Save Our Shores was a volunteer-based organization. So we had people, we had a speakers bureau, we had volunteers that would go down to the Santa Cruz Mall or go other places and tables. We'd get people signed petitions. Because the backdrop of this was the threat of offshore oil. Right. Um, and you'd mentioned earlier Ronald Reagan. So we um, had just experienced, so this was early 1986, we had just experienced Donald Hodel, who was the Secretary of Interior, had approached members of Congress, including Leon Panetta, with a compromise around offshore oil, limited oil development, um, in exchange for the congressional delegation from California dropping their opposition to oil development offshore. Groups like Save Our Shores opposed that um, compromise. But because the congressional delegation had been lulled into this effort yeah. to discuss the compromise, the opposition was not robust. And as a result, um, that year, because up until that year, Leon Panetta had led an effort to deny funding for planning mm. of offshore oil. So you couldn't run the Xerox machines. Right. You couldn't send staff out to states to negotiate with governors, uh, et cetera. So um, this effort failed by one vote in the Appropriations wow. Committee. It was the first time in years. And it was because uh, some members of Congress from around the country said, well, the... Secretary of Interior was trying to be reasonable about offshore oil and yeah. those environmentalists in California right. didn't want it. So let's let this go ahead. So that's the very year that we started our work at Save Our Shores. And because the threat of oil seemed more imminent, hmm. because all of a sudden the federal government could move full speed ahead to start planning yeah. for oil development, people said, oh my gosh. Right, scramble time. We need to do something. So we... Uh, from the time that we started up until 1990, uh, we got 26 of these local ordinances done throughout California um, from San Luis Obispo North, particularly San Luis Obispo, which would be a target area. Um, unfortunately, the Western Oil and Gas Association, with all of their resources yeah. and all their might, filed a lawsuit. Hmm. And 
While it didn't scare those communities that currently had ordinances or were passing their ordinances, and a coalition of city and county attorneys formed to respond to this lawsuit, it did scare away potential new cities and counties from considering doing the ordinances because nobody wanted to buy into a lawsuit from the oil industry. Right, right. and they saw that there, yeah. Yeah, and the politics were different then. This was the 1980s. Not everybody felt that offshore oil was a bad thing. A lot of Californians wanted it. So it was the, the it was more divided than it is hmm. today. Today it's more lopsided in opposition to offshore yeah, very oil. Much. So um, that's where I got involved with ocean protection stuff and ultimately the fight against offshore oil through the local ordinances and through more traditional methods, attending public hearings, working with local governments, et cetera. That ultimately pivoted to the creation of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Right. And ultimately, because the sanctuary offered permanent protection from offshore oil, um, Leon Panetta um, did receive assurances from the chairperson of the House Committee that was in charge of the Marine Protection Act, which is the Marine Sanctuaries Act, that Monterey Bay would be listed on the, the, the candidate sites for marine sanctuary mm-hmm. status. We formed a coalition of environmental groups that would work to strengthen the protections of that sanctuary and enlarge its size. Because at that point, it was just Monterey Bay, right. which technically would not be an area you drill for oil because yep. it's too Sweet deep with the yeah. Monterey Canyon. Um, so we were able to uh, work with others to build a scientific case. We were able to work with what was called the Six Counties Regional Working Group, uh, run by Warner Chabot, who took um, oil mitigation money and used them for studies to look at the effects of offshore oil on various species and habitats uh, on on this along the central coast and offshore. And we were also able to build a political case. And ultimately, because um, the decision to designate the sanctuary occurred during an election year in which George H.W. Bush, mm-hmm. George Bush Sr. was running for re-election, he felt he needed California to yeah. win, he made a bid uh, for environmental votes yep. in California. He threw us a bone. <laughs> and he uh, endorsed the large boundary right. for the right. Monterey Bay yeah. National Marine Sanctuary, right. which was wonderful because it gave us an opportunity um, to get this done. Uh, there were a lot of uh, loopholes in it. Uh, there was a large exclusion zone um, to allow um, dredge spoils from Port of Oakland to be dumped and mm-hmm. to allow a, a then aging sewer plant in San Francisco to be able to have its hiccups without um, um, putting San Francisco yeah. uh, up for fines right. and, and liability legally for uh, an overflow during a storm drain right. event of raw sewage. But we were able to get this done and get protection from the southern boundary of what was then called the Gulf of the Farallon mm-hmm. Sanctuary off of the Golden Gate, all the way down to the bottom of Big Sur, which right. was huge. Yeah, it's massive. It was massive. So so let me play this back and, and, and touch on a couple of things, Dan. So, so the initial, you put the strategy together, 
yes. how you're going to prevent offshore oil drilling. Right. right. It's like, and you got a room of people, it's like a war room, I'm guessing, and you're looking at all the different angles where you could do, and you go, look, if we get these, the municipalities, the cities and counties to pass this ordinance mm -hmm. that prevents the helicopter pads and the, and the infrastructure on land, we right. got a really good shot at this, right? Right. The problem was, as you said, the Western Gas Association, they've scared some people off, so to speak. So there was yeah. holes in that plan. Now let yeah. me ask you for our first question. Let's say every you were successful getting every county and every ordinance to approve this. And that's in, in theory- It would be very difficult to have offshore oil. Right, so they, let's say if that did happen. And there's, would, still, and there's work that's been restarted on that, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So it feels, so if, if that had happened, would the sanctuary that the next, the next level of defense, let me call it that, mm -hmm. which was, hey, let's designate a zone of the ocean where we can prevent this stuff from happening. If those ordinances had passed and that barrier, so to speak, on land had been developed against the oil and gas, do you think the sanctuary, that option would have rose up, would have been a thing or not? I think it sense? would have, and it's important to put all those different tools in place. Yeah. Marine sanctuary status, local ordinances, because, for example, in 2017, March 2017, President Trump uh, issued an executive order that did two things. It chucked the old uh, the old Obama five-year plan mm -hmm. for offshore oil development, which protected the West Coast and the East Coast of the United States, and put in place a new plan that would put everything back on the table, of course, right. exclusive of marine sanctuaries and na marine national monuments. However, part of that executive or order also ordered a review of areas that had received marine sanctuary and marine national monument status for the previous 10 years, since 2007, including the Davidson Seamount, which is now part yep. of Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, he ultimately, I don't believe, was successful. We never saw the results of that review. Um, the review was to determine if marine sanctuary or marine national monument status interfered with resource extraction. Because resource extraction, right. in Trump's mind, was the most important uh, uh, reason to have, um, you know, was the most important element for, uh, for the ocean in terms of what the administration saw as a priority. So you always have the threat that somebody's going to try to upend marine sanctuary status. You also have the threat that somebody's gonna sue to overturn these ordinances. So you wanna have as many protections in place as possible. Right. Fortunately, marine sanctuaries, which are a great management tool for ocean areas, we have five of them off the West Coast, mm -hmm. starting at the Olympic National Marine Sanctuary, uh, which is uh, just south of the Canadian border. And then you have four more off California they're good for protecting the resources. They're good for encouraging research. They're good for doing spatial zoning within mm -hmm. them uh, to protect special areas within those habitat areas. And uh, they're a great resource for education also. Um, and there are certain activities that are not allowed there, the, the resource protection part, which allows you to enjoy them for what they are and have other multiple uses in them. Uh, Sanctuaries, marine sanctuaries, and marine national monuments are basically, uh, they consist of resource protection webs. What I mean by that is you use state laws and federal laws, the Endangered Species mm -hmm. Act, any state uh, endangered species acts, uh, in the case of California, also water quality protections that the state has are applied and strengthened within marine sanctuaries. 
For example, in Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, you have a memorandum of understanding between water quality agencies to protect what's there in terms of water quality, and it gives you more tools, mm -hmm. essentially, as well as the local ordinances. So you refer to strategy. There was a strategy developed by uh, John Laird was on the mm -hmm. Santa Cruz City Council. He later became Res Natural Resources Secretary for California under Jerry Brown. Marty Wormhout was a member of the City Council. Kim Schantz was the founder of Save Our Shores. They all sat in a room of thought and thought of ways mm to protect the coast from offshore oil, and the, the primary thing they landed upon were the local ordinances. Right. Gary Patton, who was county supervisor for many years, was, was another one of those folks. The strategy around Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary was developed by this environmental working group I referred to. Yeah. Seven environmental groups, including the League of Women Voters, Save Our Shores, Surfrider Foundation, Coastal Advocates, Friends of the Sea Otter, many other groups, um, work together to strategize and how we were going to politically uh, do outreach to promote the large boundary and then how we were going to interface with people like Warner Chabot, yep. working with the Six Counties Working Group, Richard Charter, who was in Washington, D.C., lives in Sonoma County, but he was lobbying in Washington, D.C. to protect California coast from offshore oil. So the strategy occurred on many levels there. And sometimes you deal with the strategy of what's right in front of you. Right. So I don't think when the strategy of local ordinances was being developed, the option of marine sanctuary status really was not a live option at that point. Right. That came later. It developed after. When Leon Panetta yep. met with the chair of that committee and... Yeah. Leon said, I'd like to have protection for the, the entire California coast. And the chairperson right. said, you can't have that, but what else do you want? So Leon says, okay, give me a marine sanctuary. Yeah. And the chairperson said, you got it. Yep, yep. And there you go. So I'm guessing during that time, call it grassroots, I'd say, that grew as, as the initiative grew and more citizens got involved, more groups got involved, more partnerships were formed. It's like this, like you mentioned, a web, I would say, of just yeah. different groups and organizations. But along the way, it wasn't easy, I'm guessing, whereby there were times when it might have felt like the, maybe the Western gas guys showed up and you're just like, how are we going to compete against this? Or the government did something weird. You're like, how are we going to... And there's this... They were scary. ...constant energy. Yeah. You have to, from the human perspective of you and those around you in that group, like how did you just maintain, like, you know what? We're just plodding along. You just hit a brick wall, but we're going to go around it. Like, how did you just keep going? I did a debate in Salinas in front of um, a business group that's mostly growers. And they were a natural constituency for the opposition to offshore oil. But my debating opponent was Hank, Hank Armstrong, who was the executive director of the Western Oil and Gas Association. He had a crew cut. He was yeah. very patriotic. <laughs> he was very military. And he got up there and he says, I'm proud of the fact that we are throttling this effort by this young man next to me, referring to me, uh, to uh, use local zoning laws to oppose a federal activity. Yeah. We're using the Commerce Clause as a way to stop what they're doing, which is inappropriate. Of course, later, uh, a, ju a federal judge in Los Angeles found that our ordinances could stand. Right. And then he went on to question my patriotism. Oh, geez, right I. there, right yeah. in front of you. <laughs> oh, it was very man. clear about that, and that happened many times. 
And you also, he wasn't just a very uh, strong partisan. He also had an entire organization oh, behind yeah. him, funding him and supporting yeah. him in this effort. So it was scary. And, you know, another quick example I'm going to talk about, and I think this goes to citizen involvement, is before the sanctuary was was approved, this was in 1991, it was sort of the the period before the sanctuary was approved and we were campaigning for it heavily and we were getting a lot of blowback. And it was very difficult. I got a call from the San Francisco Chronicle. It was, I believe it was 1991, maybe 1990. And I was in Save Our Shores office in Jack O'Neill's building at the Santa Cruz mm -hmm. Harbor. And this reporter from the Chronicle says, we understand, or we have just learned that the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's office is dumping surplus weapons into Monterey Bay. Whoa. And I said, what do you mean weapons? He goes, oh, mostly guns, but maybe some other items. I said, okay. Uh, and this is a pretty good source. And they said, yeah. And they said, what is your reaction to that? Do you think this has an effect on the marine environment? And I said, yes, it does. And I enumerated what I understood to be those effects. And I didn't have a lot of resources at the time to to know a lot. There wasn't a lot of research at my fingertips. We didn't have the internet, but I went ahead and, and, and listed what the potential impacts were. So the next day the article was published. It was a small article. Um, I got a phone call from a fishing a bait and tackle shop, a fishing store, which was about 300 feet from my office. Yeah. <laughs> but they called me and it says, hey, this is so-and-so over at and I won't name yep. the place, which is no longer there. It says, we're all laughing at you. What's this ridiculous thing you said about, you know, a few guns being dropped in Monterey Bay? That's going to affect fish life and the, the bottom habitat. And they're all laughing. And you're, you're ridiculous. You should be embarrassed. You know, you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. Ah, hang up. Right. They hung up the phone. I thought, oh, great. Awesome. The next day, <laughs> I ran into a very high-ranking employee of the Santa Cruz Harbor. And he looks at me kind of with a mocking look and he said, you know, I'm the one who goes to pick up those weapons from the sheriff's office and I put them in the back of the Harbor Patrol boat and we go out about two miles and drop them. I go out two miles. Do you think there's a problem with that? I said, well, I do. Yeah, actually. Says, well, what are the problems? I go, well, I got a call from the reporter. I don't know exactly what they are, but you know, you didn't look into it and you proudly did that. And he says, well, it's better to have those um things in Monterey Bay than having them available for somebody to, to use them. I said, well, that's a good point. You know, you don't want surplus weapons laying yeah. around, but there could be other things it's that could be done. Melt them down, yeah. And he says, well, I think that was ridiculous. Oh, okay. And then a couple weeks later, I was having lunch with state Senator Henry Mello, who I would later work for. And um, a couple tables over was the elected sheriff of Santa Cruz County. And, at one point, he was staring at me. And I said, <laughs> Senator, why is he looking at me? And Henry goes, he reads the Chronicle, Dan. <laughs> and it passed. Yeah. But it was, you know, and it was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't the worst thing, but it, it was an indicator of the way things were in those days. Sure. Today, of course, very different. number one, nobody would try to do that, at least not publicly admit that they were doing it. Yeah. Um, everybody would deny that they had any involvement in it. And of course there are impacts to the marine environment. Um, but it's just an indicator of yeah. what you're up against. Sure. I mean, I had a meeting, uh, after the sanctuary was approved 
down in Morro Bay, which was well south of the sanctuary, but I wanted yep. to meet with folks in San Luis Obispo, and there was no sanctuary staff here at the time. And um, I was not well received. Yeah. Uh, it was mostly fishermen, and they didn't know much about what the plans were. And the sanctuary did allow and does allow fishing to continue, but they were afraid of other uh, impacts. They just didn't want more government managers involved in their business, and it was a pretty hostile crowd. My so bet. I've seen that before. Yeah, and it and those meetings. So it was good that I was young and didn't have a you know. Yeah. I, I was at that point. I had a family. I had started a family. Um, I married Rebecca um, in uh, in 1989, and uh, the day after, the day before we were married, was the Exxon Valdez accident, yeah. which was one of the things that propelled the right. sanctuary. So, citizen involvement. So, it's 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 sometimes it's really hard to put yourself out there, but if you know you're on the right side of history, yeah, then you ultimately know that something's going to be right. And now, of course. The ocean not only needs protection in and of itself, but it's also the major line of defense against climate change. It's yeah. the major habitat uh, for sinking carbon. Yep. And because it's working overtime doing that, um, we have the concept of ocean acidification creeping up on us. But it's really essential that we maintain the health of the ocean. So while the pH is changing the ocean because of greenhouse gases that are being absorbed into the ocean and chemically, through a chemical process, changing the chemistry of the ocean ever so slightly, it's important to protect the ocean by limiting the amount of plastic pollution yep. that goes into it, by keeping the health of fish stocks that are there, uh, and doing everything else possible to bolster its health, just like a body. Yeah, you know, you want to make sure you're healthy to fight off the infections yep. and diseases. It's a similar thing. Hundred percent. So, you you spent a, a ton of energy and years in this activism protection role, trying to prevent just what could be catastrophic events happening in the ocean from oil drilling that turned into other other areas of uh, dumping in the sea, helping the, for, the sanctuary be formed that then also has rules and regulations to prevent a bunch of other stuff that we right. probably don't want happening. Right. That at some point you shifted over, you shifted from kind of activism and preventing things more towards education. Exactly, so the uh, interesting, another aspect of, uh, of marine sanctuaries, which are often overlooked, is research. So, for example, Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary has a really small but very nimble and very brilliant team of scientists working there. And they partner with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute yeah. and with Long Marine Lab and Moss Landing Marine Lab and Hopkins Marine Station and with uh, the California Seamounts Coalition and a number of other organizations, Point Blue Conservation to do research expeditions yeah. with NOAA ships and with Mabari vessels that are deployed to do um, research, for example, on Davidson Seamount, mm -hmm. above Davidson Seamount, uh, south of Davidson Seamount, they discovered a huge octopus garden. Yeah, that's um, so cool. Which was uh, real, and that would not have been uncovered had it not been for the sanctuary and its yeah. partners going out there. Um, Sir Ridge is another fascinating mm -hmm. area of research. Cultural heritage. Yeah. Uh, we have shipwrecks. We have the remainders of the old Navy dirigible 
um, the USS Macon off right. of uh, off of Big Sur yep. that's down below, and it's actually a burial site for two seamen mm-hmm. who died going down with that dirigible in the nineteen you know in the nineteen thirties. So this all happens with marine sanctuaries. Another aspect is education. Mm-hmm. So I um, when the the Monterey Bay Sanctuary was established in nineteen ninety two, there was a party at the Santa Cruz Harbor, and I knew Jack O'Neill obviously because. We were renting a space from him uh, in his building that he leased from the harbor that he built uh, on a, on a long term lease from the harbor, and I knew of him, and we were friends, and he uh, was a donor to Save Our Shores, and he started talking to me about his idea that he had been talking to his son Tim about, and to some of his employees and friends about, of using his catamaran, the Tim O'Neill catamaran, which had. They were renovating for charters mm-hmm. uh, so they can get the public out on the ocean. He wanted to take school children out on the ocean to teach them science so they would protect the ocean. And that was a concept he had been shopping around because hmm. that's the way he did business wow. is he had ideas and he would you know, promote these ideas within his team. He's like, what do you think? What would it take for this to work? And he would convince people this was a good idea. Yeah. And ultimately, in 1996, his friend Tom Marcatello's spouse, Piggy Marcatello, had a couple classes uh, from Mountain School, and they were among the first to uh, pilot this thing called O'Neill Sea Odyssey, taking students out in the ocean to do a plankton tow to learn about threats to the ocean, pollution threats to the ocean, to learn about navigation, to get a sense of place. So essentially a holistic oceanographic approach with an outcome of stewardship to protect the ocean. And the idea took off. He formed a board of directors in 1997. Many of those same board members are still on the board today. They formed a charter uh, and bylaws and got incorporation as a nonprofit in 1997. The number of classes started to build, but the whole thing kind of started to get beyond what an all-volunteer group could do. So um, they did have crew that they were paying to do the instruction Mm -hmm. and to take kids on the boat. Operating a boat is an expensive Mm -hmm. proposition. So uh, Jack approached me about coming over and helping them get started. And ultimately, um, I went to work in May 1999. I went full-time to become the executive director of O'Neill Sea Odyssey. And um, uh, ultimately the program became a three hour field trip on the ocean in a science lab in Jack O'Neill's building at Santa Cruz Harbor, which we renovated in 2003 and 2004 um, with donor funds. Uh, Also classroom curriculum, which is next generation science standards aligned curriculum for every class that uses our program. Um, and also a community service project. So the trip on the ocean is free. The school does not pay for it. That's why we serve a lot of low-income students because it's accessible. We also pay for bus transportation Mm, for low-income schools. And we supply free ocean science curriculum for these classes. So it's a soup-to-nuts science shop for fourth through sixth grade classes. So we serve up to 210 classes a year, Wow! mostly in the fall and in the spring when 
the school year is in full swing, uh, not so much in the summer, and definitely not in the dead of winter when you can't get out of Santa <laughs> yeah, Cruz it's a Harbor. It's bumpy for the kids. <laughs> it's bumpy for the kids when you can't get out of the harbor yeah, right. because of shoaling. Yeah. So December, you're not going out. I mean, maybe December 1st and 2nd if you can get out of the harbor. Yeah. And we've scheduled classes late November, early December. But December, January, February, usually you can't get out of the harbor because yeah. the Santa Cruz Harbor uh, is the recipient of a lot of sand from the San Lorenzo River. And those are busy months for the ocean. So a lot of churning going yeah. along, a lot of currents that are robust, shall mm -hmm. we say, and bring a lot of sand in. So the program has now served close to 105,000 students. Wow. And um, it's a singular experience. Most of those children have never been on the ocean. Yep. And uh, they learn about the ocean on the ocean, which is a unique experience because they're young, ages nine through 12. That singular experience in the ocean is formative for yeah, them. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Very formative for them. And so they're, we don't do repeat visits. A lot of outdoor ed funders want repeat visits, which works in high school, but not really for younger kids. What we do with O'Neill Sea Odyssey is uh, we get as many kids on the water as possible for that singular experience and then extend their knowledge and understanding and appreciation through the classroom curriculum, the community service, and the other opportunities they have. And over the years, and this is a beauty of social media, you know, we cannot follow the students from their Sea Odyssey experience to the time they graduate right. because of privacy concerns. But a lot of the students will come back to us through social media or through other means and tell us, wow, yeah. that was what encouraged me to go into <clears throat> philanthropy or to go into marine science or to become an environmentalist or to help others. Uh, one example is um, there's a high-tech company in Santa Clara County that is a supporter of ours, and they became a robust supporter of, of O'Neill Sea Odysseys when a new coordinator for their, their philanthropic program came on board. This individual happened to be a former Sea Odyssey student. Oh, how cool. And was encouraged not only to fund us, right. but to fund all those things that encourage students into science yep. and into STEM, which is science, technology, uh, engineering, and math, uh, to encourage women yep. and to encourage people of color, young people of color to get into these uh, disciplines as well. Um, we've had others come to us say, I was inspired to become a school teacher. We had a school teacher from Salinas who was teaching in Salinas who came into my office one day uh, he had brought his students out for a couple of years, and I said, well, how did you know about our program besides getting the emails and from us and knowing when it was time to apply? And he says, what are you talking about? Uh, I was a kid in Watsonville, and I went on in your program twice. Wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he said, that changed my life. His name is Andrea Salgado. So um, that is a very powerful tool, and this is the next generation of ocean stewards. Indeed, and as you mentioned before, we talked about like the Sea Odyssey, the Ocean Sea Odyssey, or O'Neill Sea Odyssey. We're talking about like the change in our environment and the ocean, ocean acidification, other things. And there's two ways to, to for us as people, humans, I think, to be able to address that. One is prevent what's happening right now as exactly. best you can. And then try to encourage and inform and educate 
the kids to be able to, to prepare them to combat what's going to come in front of us in 10 years, 20 years, 30 Precisely. years by be, getting them involved. And so that's yes. what I see is so giving them the, the valuable. Tools. Yeah. And the yeah. connection, the tools, but also like, like, as you mentioned, and this is one of my favorite things about the podcast and what we talked about earlier is this connection to the ocean. It could be a connection to mountains or streams. It doesn't really matter. But if you don't have that direct connection to something, you may have a natural affinity for it. But if you don't know because you're an inner city kid or you're living in the Central Valley, you actually never even been to the coast. The moment you see it or step on it, you might have this flash because that happens. It happens, you know, yeah. as well as an educational component. So what O'Neill Seattle does as a program, we just don't, we can't have enough of that these days. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So there are similar programs around the country. Most of them charge. So we have the yeah. model of fundraising and having it be free. Um, but you know, you do what you can where you can. Having yeah. programs on the water is a very expensive and logistically challenging proposition. A lot of our donors, Sea Odyssey's donors, will say, well, you're very expensive and I can do things more cheaply with an outdoor education program on land. And I say, well, go for it. Yeah. Outdoor education on land is very powerful and very effective. We do something on the ocean because right. that's also effective. Very different. And it's, you know, it's a separate it's a separate thing. And a lot of teachers will use a lot of field trips as part of their experiential yeah. learning uh, curve and arc as they're teaching their students. Um, but you're right. It's important to educate students with the facts. Yeah. When I was at Save Our Shores many years ago, I could go into a classroom and have kids fill out postcards in opposition to offshore oil and give them a little bit of background information. Today, everything has to be scientifically based. You have to align with the yeah. standards, which is good because you get challenged on this stuff. I mean, there are climate change deniers. When I was writing my newspaper column for the Sentinel, I would be confronted with it all the time. Mm, Whenever I that. talked about ocean acidification or climate change, I'd get commenters, I'd get emails, so commenters on the Sentinel website. I'd get emails from people challenging me. I actually did a, um, uh, a column about uh, polystyrene foam mm -hmm. and uh, the the fact that you could not recycle it and that it was very damaging. And I got an email from a gentleman and he was very well informed. Turns out he was one of the pioneers of polystyrene foam, but he was very upset. Yeah, And he challenged me based on facts. He was an engineer, he's a PhD, very smart. So you have to go into these things prepared. You don't go into battle, right. you know, uh, with a stick in your hand. You have to be able to interact and have some yeah, confidence right. and have have a conversation yeah. have the conversation with facts on your side yeah. so that's all very important um so students need that you need to give them that and the tools to be able to deal with this and a, a big picture so you mentioned ocean acidification plastic pollution fisheries so we do give them a big picture yeah. view at O'Neill Sea Odyssey. And also they're given some of the current issues uh, as part of the outcomes so they can apply science to these. So when they grow up, they'll become activists, whether it's as a volunteer, as they're raising their families or doing their jobs, or if they go into the field, right. that right. they're able to confront these things. And at the same time, we have to be able to be activists today. So in my retirement, from O'Neill Sea Odyssey, 
I'm on several boards. I'm an activist. Today, I'm going to be going out uh, in an effort to raise funds for an event for the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary Foundation chapter, for example. Um, you know, that's the way I'm going to, I spend part of my retirement besides having fun yeah. <laughs> and seeing friends. But um, you need to give people the tools because you mentioned before the critical mass of people building networks, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. uh, you have, for example, the politics of today, but the fact is that if you look back at the history of marine sanctuaries, you've had a lot of support from Republican presidents, from Republican members of Congress. It's not a partisan issue. And I still believe that that's possible today, yeah. that you can get yeah. this administration to have somebody believing in marine sanctuaries, to have somebody believing in marine national monuments. And in fact, this year, the sanctuary budget did experience a bump of a million dollars. So, which is a good thing. Yeah, sure. So everybody lives on this planet and everybody has an appreciation for the outdoors. So you go back to the model of Teddy Roosevelt. Right. The great environmentalist and a Republican. Yeah, so. yeah. One thing too, I was talking to with Jenea, who you know, is from the Monterey Bay Sanctuary Foundation about is, while it's such a, a success, a great story that we can all here be proud of because it's local, it's close, we can touch it. It's also, I think, and she, we chatted about this a little bit, a model for other places in the world. You're a developing country, right? And you're seeing this stuff happen to you. The oil is coming in or the fisheries are getting depleted or whatever it is. And right. the citizens are getting overrode. Marine protected areas. It's like they need, they might not have any, any clue what to do, but what has been done here over the past you know, 30 years is actually educationally and activist-wise, um, it's a model, right? So now in theory, and I'm, so this is going to come back as a question, mm -hmm. have you had the opportunity or is there interest of sharing your knowledge of, of creating organizations and campaigns and efforts that can do good, that can make change based on citizens of course, you know, around the world and other places? Yeah, well, and, and there's efforts like that underway now. Save the Waves yeah. uh, is, running, is, is literally worldwide. Uh, mostly in Central and South America and, and, uh, and Europe. Um, there are efforts around the globe. There are international efforts. Um, I spoke at two conferences mm -hmm. in Santiago de Cuba, in Cuba, which is a very robust environmental program, at least at the theoretical level. Um, there are programs in Africa. I collaborated with a gentleman who's putting something together on the east coast of Africa, he's oh, African. Cool. Um, that is modeled a little bit on yeah. O'Neill Sea Odyssey and also a land-based model. Uh, so yes, marine protected areas, marine sanctuaries, and national marine monuments are a model for ocean management and protection. You do need to include the stakeholders Fishers, for example, need to be yeah. involved when it comes to marine protected areas. And um, you do need to um, work out deals that allow you to move forward. Like Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, the fishing community, uh, they weren't um, uh, enthusiastic about it. But uh, as opposed to the first time that Monterey Bay was proposed for marine sanctuary status, they didn't oppose it. Uh, as they had the first time because they're allowed to continue practices which in many cases are sustainable practices yeah. uh, within Monterey Bay. So you need buy-in. And in developing countries in particular, you have economies where people are desperately yeah. 
um, needing to extract resources, you know, manta ray fishing mm -hmm. around the edges of the Galapagos, for example, um, to fill a certain need for Chinese medicine. Um, you can look for alternatives to that. And the, and the way to do that is to have conversations with people. But yes, it is something that you could propose yeah, yeah. throughout the world. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, and work is being done on that. The right. UN is leading the charge on that. NGOs are leading the charge. Many governments are looking at it. You have countries in Africa that are now focusing on visitation to see wildlife in a controlled manner as opposed to yeah. killing wildlife right. and realizing... This is really important. You know, we need to have the gorilla population alive. We need to have the elephant population alive mm -hmm. and thriving, uh, both for the sustainability of our country and its environment yeah. and our ability to live here, as well as our economy. And you can build an economic model based on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I see it and it's happening. It's just, can it happen fast enough? We'll see. But yeah. So then you just retired from O'Neill Sea Odyssey, yeah. right? What's kind of next then, Dan? You're, you're, you're working on different boards, lending yeah. your support where you can in as much as time as you have in the day, but like kind of what, what's next? Any big goals or what's something out there? I'm going to, so for? on these boards, uh, so one of my dreams was having Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary have a foundation. And this is something that Paul Michelle, the superintendent, mm -hmm. pushed and talked to Secretary Leon Panetta about. And, Secretary Panetta is the chair of the board, along with Hillary Bryant, former mayor of Santa Cruz. Um, so supporting marine sanctuaries has been a passion of mine. So I'm going to continue working on that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm no longer writing the column. Rachel Kippen, who is the new director of O'Neill Sales, is doing that. But right now I'm going to work on these boards as a volunteer and be an activist. Cool. And marine sanctuaries are a particular passion of mine. The ocean is a passion of mine. And as I'm able to with my life as it is, and I have a very disabled adult daughter I help mm -hmm. take care of with my wife. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I will uh, enjoy my family and my mm -hmm. friends and also continue to be an activist for the ocean. Yeah, I believe that marine sanctuaries are the future. Marine national monuments are the future. There's a proposal for a Chumash Heritage oh, National cool. Marine Sanctuary south of Big Sur down to northern Santa Barbara County. Um, I have some friends down there who are very involved in that effort. I support that effort in any way I can. Yeah. And um, right now, the member of Congress from that area, Represent Representative Carbajal, has asked NOAA to... Uh, begin the nomination process oh. for that site. Awesome. Uh, now the proposal has yeah. been submitted. So that's a very awesome thing. There yeah. are two other marine sanctuaries that are on the nomination list. Uh, one in the Great Lakes and one on the Potomac. Uh, I look forward to those moving yeah. ahead. I, so I'm going to continue to be involved with National Marine Sanctuaries. I'm also passionate about writing about the oceans and I'm on the board of Catamaran Literary Reader, hmm. which is a literary magazine that supports many things, creative writing and art uh, in all of its forms, uh, but ocean activists who are scientists and also writers uh, are very involved in that. For example, cool. who knew that Jonathan Franzen, a great writer, well-known writer, is also passionate about birding. Hmm. Uh, you have people like uh, Karen Joy Fowler, who are great environmentalists in their own time. Uh, Jay Nichols, who wrote Blue Mind and is yeah. a marine scientist from Davenport, yep. uh, was an early writer for Catamaran, as well as Melissa Cronin, who 
uh, runs the Fishtails program here, Fish Stories, yeah. uh, Great Gatherings, and is a marine biologist getting her PhD and is a brilliant writer. Mm. So these things, cool. so ways that you can touch people through art, through science, yep. for the ocean. Those are my passions and that's what I'm going to be working yeah. on in my free time. Nice. I'm 61 years old, so however many years I have left on this planet, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, solid man. And you just finished a book yourself too, which... 40 Basically, years of saving our shores. Yeah. And that doesn't mean cool. I was saving our shores for 40, 40 yeah. years. It means that the organization Save sure. Our Shores turned 40 in in nineteen uh, in 2018. Yeah, that's quite something. That so the really book is. starts with the founding of Save Our Shores and the history leading up to that founding. There was a proposal for a power uh, nuclear power plant near Davenport, Davenport Landing. There's yep. a proposal to create a deep water port in Moss Landing yeah. for uh, oil refining and super tankers. There were other proposals um, that uh, got citizens involved and ultimately the offshore oil threat in the 1970s spurred the development of Save Our Shores. That book's available through the museum, Santa Cruz Museum of Art mm. and History. It is a Ma book. Yep. Uh, I was the author of it, but I had assistance from the Ma Publications Committee, a group cool. of volunteers who worked on that. So um, it's good stuff. I'll put some links in the show notes too for folks who want to track it down, maybe get a copy of it or see some of the other thank you. organizations that we talked about today. But to kind of wrap up, Dan, I want to like personally thank you for your efforts. I know, you, as you said, you were one of many. Yeah. Um, because as somebody who grew up in Santa Cruz, and as we started the podcast episode talking about is being immersed in the water. And I've been fortunate to have had a, a part of my career, the best part of my career, I'd say, working with the Monterey Bay National Sanctuary, yeah. doing diving, working with those scientists and having a chance to support from that end as well. But from my own kind of selfish connection and need to be in the ocean of growing up here and surfing, fishing, diving, sailing, boating, you name it. Yeah. Just, I thank you for your efforts and everybody's, but just on Sunday... I was out in the Soquel Hole, which is where you uh -huh. go for salmon. Yeah. And it was, I'm really honestly trying not to like, you know, we, oh, it was the best day ever. And I was really thinking about it, but I honestly think it was the most wildlife I've ever seen yeah. at one point. It was insane. We're out there fishing for bluefin tuna to start. Yeah. Because bluefin tuna, yeah. eight miles out, that's insane. I know. And there's salmon. Yeah. Birds are on the surface pecking at krill. Yeah. Underneath, we were snagging yeah. anchovies this big. We had to take them off our hooks. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's a pot of orcas over here. Yeah. Gray whales we had already seen. There's, yeah. there's the, normal, the normal characters Amazing. of sea lions, dolphins, albatross. You see albatross when you're outside the bay. Right. We saw them in the Soquel Hole. It was, and my buddy who works for fisheries, he's, we were just sitting there like absolutely tripping out. And it was so heartening. Yeah. It was so exhilarating to see that for just a few miles away from us right yeah. now. And the conditions are right. There. Starting in 2010, the, you start to see more whale activity close yeah. to shore because of bait fish closer to shore because of te ocean temperature changes. Yep. And then you get a cascade effect and krill and plankton and nutrients. Yeah. It all creates this these conditions and so our responsibility is to keep it all healthy, but then you can enjoy. Yeah. This is the outcome is you have to have a healthy, thriving ecosystem out there yeah, with all right. these amazing things and all these amazing creatures. 
And so we have a responsibility as being another creature on the planet right. to help support that. And we can enjoy it. And yeah. they can hopefully enjoy yeah, us. That's it. Dead on, man. Dead on. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for all your efforts. Thank you for sharing so much with us today. This has been yeah. tons of fun. And for folks, again, I'll put a bunch of, for folks who get inspired to do something, maybe yeah. more than what you're doing, whether it's just maybe not using that plastic straw or signing oh, yeah. up to do a beach cleanup or who knows what else. Yeah. Um, I'll put a bunch of show notes, uh, links in the show notes and everything. But Thank you so much, Dan. Really, really appreciate it, man. Thanks, Josh. I really appreciate uh, your taking the time with me today. Great. All Cheers. Right. Thanks. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. We really appreciate all the support. Uh, if you like what you heard, uh, please, you know, uh, hype us up on social media. Always appreciate, you know, spreading the word. Uh, give us a nice little rating on the uh, your podcast app and uh, just keep tuning in. If you're interested in being on the show and sharing some of your life stories, uh, hit me up, Josh at thisoceanlife.tv. You can PM me on uh, Facebook or Instagram. Anyway, thanks again for being here and uh, have a great day.